0: Everybody, Welcome to the Back Room, I'm Andy Ostroy.
1: I got rid of Roe v. Wade. I'm the one that got rid of Roe v. Wade. I was able to do it, and I was very honored to do it. Do you believe in punishment for abortion, yes or no, as a
0: principle? Uh, the answer is that there has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. There, of course, remains a vital role for the federal government in protecting unborn life. Nobody has ever done more for right-to-life than Donald Trump. Roe v. Wade, they won. They finally won. Uh, The Iowa bill was signed, and they wouldn't have been able to do anything if I wasn't able to do what I did. Wow. So much to talk about. And we're going to get to it all in a moment. But first, thanks for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening. And we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Here's a little feedback we received this week. On our interview with documentary filmmaker Alexandra Pelosi, Leslie J. writes, Such a good interview. I had an aha moment. Why, as a staunch Democrat who religiously read my local paper and watched the nightly news, I would vote for Reagan? It's the editing. And Carolyn Marks Blackwood just simply writes, she's really great. So that was Donald Trump before, talking about Roe v. Wade, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and, of course, his narcissistic taking credit for it, very proudly taking credit for it. And uh, he, of course, can also take credit for r- Republicans losing every single election because of it and probably going to keep losing every single election because of it. Was that a
1: big takeaway for you guys, too? Yeah, I think he does deserve credit for it, so I'm going to give it to him. Yeah,
0: I do, too. Right. And, and I think uh, Republicans this week are sitting back Uh, realizing that this dream they had for 50 years of overturning Roe v. Wade and stripping women of their reproductive
1: rights, families of their reproductive rights, it's just backfired colossally. I think the smarter, more politically savvy Republicans never wanted that dog to catch the car. It was a great way to activate the base and get them out to the polls. And that's why even after Tuesday, you hear Republicans doubling down and saying this is, you know, of course we're going to defend life and we're going to keep going this way and they're going to ignore it because their options are really limited. They have a base which wants to hear that and they have nothing else. So if they said something rational, they'd lose their base.
0: Governor Andy Bashir won reelection in Kentucky by a much bigger margin than he did last time. And his opponent was running on a a strong anti-abortion platform. In Virginia, Democrats not only kept the Senate, but we flipped the House. And this was a huge rebuke to Governor Glenn Youngkin, who was promising his own abortion ban in the state. So what we're seeing is a movement that continues in this country away from stripping people (laughs) of— their personal rights. This was a horrible week for Republicans and a great week for Democrats. The question remains, was it a great
1: week for Biden? Just going back for a moment to Andy Beshear's uh, campaign, I think that we should note that he had the incredibly powerful ad that showed the story of a 12-year-old girl that was raped by her stepdad. And that really uh, helped his campaign dramatically because it really showed the insanity that was on the other side.
0: Republicans just can't help themselves. That's what it is. They, There's religious zealots who cannot help themselves.
2: Absolutely, 100%. And now mm-hmm. the
0: states, one by one, are saying, go fuck yourself. And so now the narrative has shifted to... Nationwide ban.
1: Of course. The evangelicals always wanted to ban completely and it was a lie from the beginning and now they have to keep activating their base with something new. That's why we have kitty litter bathroom nonsense with children. Every right. other culture war nonsense. Thing. Book
2: banning. But for every win, you know, there's a scary loss. So, you know, DeSantis signed a six-week ban in Florida. So it's, it, it's not a perfect world. It's not a perfect world, but In general,
0: the movement in this country is not in the direction of what DeSantis in Florida did. And it's not just about abortion. It's about gun reform, climate. It's about a lot of things. The Republican Party is completely out of step with the average American, the majority, the overwhelming majority of Americans on a number of these hot-button issues. That's why they're losing election after election after election. You know, Governor Beshear. He won by one, less than 1% in the last race. He won by 5%. Think about that. He got five times the amount of support in 2023 than he did in the last election. So that tells you something. The bigger question is the one I asked before. How does this impact Joe Biden?
1: Obviously, we had the freakout poll before mm-hmm. this election, and this election seemed to show that the freakout poll was all wrong. I'm not sure that that's what it shows. I think these sort of off-year elections don't really get all of the occasional voters, the younger voters, the voters that are less white, and the more disaffected voters. So those are the voters that are going to come show up or not show up in a presidential election. So this off-year election, while is encouraging, It doesn't dismiss the danger that we're in for Joe Biden.
0: Yeah, the dangers are there. But one could argue the point that
1: this is Joe Biden's party.
0: And so if the party does well, Joe Biden's going to do well. That's why I always say uh, you're in politics. I mean, mean, look at the difference in the narrative from Sunday to Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly why it is insane insane for anyone to sit here today a year out and predict what's going to happen a year from now, especially in this crazy upside down world where where the front runner is facing four to seven trials next year.
2: And another thing David Brooks mentioned in the New York Times was that the poll also seemed to express people's dissatisfaction with government in general. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it has to be looked at in a broader context.
1: The poll that scares me much more than the Times-Siena poll was the other poll related to third-party candidates. Third-party candidates got the highest percentage in the history of polling for this foreign advancement election. And when you put the numbers for someone like Cornell West on there, you have almost 75% of respondents saying they would like a third option or mm-hmm. fourth option or a fifth option. Uh, if there's two options, it's one thing. But if there's three or four options... I think we're in deep, deep trouble. You mean like Jill Stein and Joe Manchin?
0: We have Jill Stein who announced. Jill Stein who, depending upon who you talk Mm -hmm. to, may or may not have caused Hillary Clinton to lose. Mm -hmm. I don't think Joe Manchin at the end of the day is going to throw away his legacy to elect Donald Trump again. That's my personal opinion. But it is dangerous when you put all these people together. And that doesn't even include Bobby Kennedy, who I do think, uh, and I agree with the experts, that he poses more of a a threat to Trump. Whether you believe the New York Times poll or not, no one argues that this is going to be a close race. Mm -hmm. It was close the last time. Mm -hmm. It'll be close again. It may be less close given the insurrection, the indictments, the trials, whatever. Who knows? There's a lot of balls up in the air that can land anyway. But given that it's going to be really close, a point here, two points there, three points total. But maybe when that person goes in and sees Jill Stein, they go, you know what? That didn't work out for me so well last time. I really do think if we truly believe that people view this as the most critical election in our lifetime, for the obvious reasons, I think when they go into that voting booth this time, they're going to say, I'm not fucking around. It's either Trump or Biden. And I got to pick one of those.
1: I'm not as optimistic, but I, I appreciate your optimism. Well,
0: I mean, Donald Trump has cost him everything, which is why we opened with that clip. He's taking credit for something which is literally destroying his party. So you can take solace in looking at Tuesday's results and say, this actually is how the people in this country feel. This is what they did. Not in lib states, in Kentucky, in Ohio, in places where liberal thinking should not win, where Democrats should not win. And I think when it sort of bring this to a close to answer my own question, I do think come next November. What happened today and what is likely going to happen for the next 12 months bodes very well for Biden.
1: I, I think we should talk about something we can all agree upon, and that is uh, Ivanka's um, appearance in court. What, what what'd you think of it?
0: Well, that falls under the larger Trump umbrella because okay. we have Trump. Are we back? We're ba- are Baby's you? back? We've never left. We never <laughs> leave Trump. So there's a bunch of things that we can quickly go through with Trump, Ivanka being one, which we'll to get to it in a second. But the trial continued. (laughs) He had to testify, and he went into a colossal man-baby meltdown. The judge literally had to look at the lawyers and say, get him under control or I will. It's just incredible how he's still playing to the court of public opinion,
1: even on the witness stand. He's essentially already lost this case. It's just about how much the penalty is going to be. He's guilty of fraud. Okay. Okay.
0: And it is all about the consequences, financial, business licenses, yep. etc. The one person who's making that decision is the guy you're on the witness stand attacking. Okay. And then Ivanka.
2: She looked great. She's
0: fabulous. I love how she struts I in. Know. She's like on the runway. But then she also had this in, this disease, which the Trump family seems to be inflicted by. Uh, serious I don't recall. Mem- mem- <laughs> huge memory loss. I mean, they talk about <laughs> Biden being old and senile. Even the young Trumps are feeble and senile. None of them can fucking remember anything.
2: Right? That's the secret to their
0: success. <laughs> okay, so we also had uh, the debate, mm. which you know falls under the Trump umbrella because he wasn't there, and I, I just I. I'm sitting there going, okay, is anyone going to mention the fact that he's Charles Manson? Like, is anyone going to bring that up? The moderators, anyone going to go, what do you think about running against someone who is out on bail and criminally indicted four times on 91 felony? Like, is anybody on this stage want to talk about that? The only person that even came close, which was so weak, was Chris Christie. He's going to be busy with trials next year. He came and went in like a flash. No mention of indictments, no mention of crime, no mention of a
1: judge calling him a rapist. None of that. I couldn't watch this debate, but I watched outtakes. And I I heard that Vivek actually called Zelensky a Nazi. Yes. I also saw that. By
0: the way, Jews love when you call them Nazis. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's
1: a term of endearment. With family that died in the Holocaust, too. I'm talking about Zelensky. You also had a fight about Nikki Haley's daughter. With TikTok. TikTok. Yeah, TikTok. She went Will Smith on him.
0: Yeah. Keep my daughter out your fucking mouth.
2: You are scum.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was literally like life imitating art, right. imitating life. Like It was kind of crazy. I, I think she should have turned around and just knocked him out. Like, <laughs> that
2: would
1: have been great.
0: That would have been great. Like Will Smith would be somewhere going, Yeah, that's great. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, knock that motherfucker out.
1: <laughs> and then. DeSantis, I saw clips of it. He still is incapable of smiling in a normal human way.
0: <laughs> um, I don't know. It just It is like watching a train
1: wreck. Can, can we all agree, though, that no one on that stage is going to beat Trump in a primary at this moment?
0: I'm still not going to oh, no. count out <laughs> Tricky Nicky. Pence is coming back. No, 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 no. no. Keep your eyes on Tricky Nicky. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you. When? Look, you know my theory. My, my theory is Trump is not going to be on that ballot.
1: That's the crazy theory. It's not a I, crazy theory.
0: It's not a crazy... How is it a crazy theory? He, the man literally is going to be in court almost every away. fucking day next year. And when it comes to Georgia and the mandatory five-year RICO sentence... He'll, for, he'll,
1: he won't be in jail uh, that early.
0: Okay, here's how it's going to happen. I'm running for president. <laughs> I'm running for president so I can shield myself to stay out of jail. Or I can actually take a deal... Because I'm going to jail, he's going to lose that case. The, period. There isn't a legal expert I've seen on TV that that even comes close to doubting that's going to happen. We agree. And I think a he's mandatory gonna, he, five year sentence. He's going to lose one, a lot of cases. And the other thing is, one by one, his eighteen co defendants, they are all going to flip. And when you're faced with having seventeen other people knowing that they're testifying against you in an already strong case. You're going away for a minimum
2: of five years. But you're being logical. But, if, but there's another problem. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But, no, seriously. What else should I be? But, but, spew but he's, not, up, sp- but he's a who, But he's not You've logical. Said he's a sociopath. It doesn't matter.
1: It's not up to him. It, no, but it is up it to him to take a to plea deal. He's a coward.
0: He's a coward. And it's going to take right up to the last minute. And then there's going to be some kind of intervention with his family, with his, I won't say friends because he doesn't have any friends, but people close to him, his advisors, and they're going to smack him in the face with reality.
2: That's so logical, and I, that's how I think, but I will just name your bet.
0: I just think it's foolish for anyone to say the shit that Donald Trump is going to be facing next year just isn't going to impact him politically.
2: But you specifically had talked about him doing a plea deal. Yes. Okay, but that's where we dive. I
0: I get all that. I'm just saying there's a reality to, to the judicial system in this country in four different jurisdictions that is really what's going to matter. It's the court of public opinion versus the court of law argument, and that is this shit's pretty black and white, whether it's the Georgia case, the stolen documents case, the fraud case in New York, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you're talking about we could have a a verdict in a few weeks where Donald Trump is no longer allowed to do business in New York and has to pay $250 million. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of fucking money. So the landscape for him is not good, and that can, in my opinion, on some very significant level, be the difference between the kind of stuff we're talking about today and where we're going to be next November.
1: Yeah, it's just that he's going to be able to appeal these things at Infinitum for a while, and some of them, some of the uh, parts of these cases, could go all the way to the Supreme Court, and that could delay things many, yeah, many, but, many months.
0: Know, there's legal experts will say that the court probably wouldn't touch this, and and and, in, and saying they won't touch it, they're going to do that really quickly. Or if they do touch it or if other courts, appeals, appellate courts touch it, they're going to push. We've seen how courts have been pushing through decisions very quickly. Motions get filed and they get addressed and answered by the court really, really quickly. I got to say that the courts in this country, since Trump's bullshit, have stood by democracy in the Constitution every single time. There's not one instant, instance where we could say the court ruled poorly, the court ruled against democracy and the rule of law, or the court stalled. To the contrary, every single case has been fought and won, and moved through the system quickly. And, and I think, with given the stakes that you're talking about, because I'm not arguing the merits of your your opinion, I'm just saying that given what you're saying, the courts understand that, and I don't think they're going to let him use, abuse, and exploit the system so that he can become dictator. No fucking way.
1: Most of them do. I mean, Alien Canon being an exception, but uh... yeah,
0: well, that's what kept us. A democracy yeah. is—he filed 60-some-odd cases. For sure.
1: Each one of them were just pissed on. Including by judges appointed by him. Yeah.
0: So I, I think, you know, uh, that's that's what we have to— But
1: do. he won't take a plea deal, even okay. all of this being true. All right.
0: So last couple of things real quick. Rashida Taleb censured by the House. Mixed feelings on that. I mean, people who I— Admire and respect, like Representative Jamie Raskin. A lot of other Democrats voted against it. This is apparently a free speech issue to those who believe it was wrong. 22 Democrats voted with, I think, almost all Republicans to censure her. My own personal opinion is that I think it was important to do. I
1: don't know. What do you guys think? I don't think she should have been censured. I'll I'll always agree with Jamie Raskin.
2: Mm -hmm. She should have been censored.
1: Okay, we'll move on from that.
0: Anyway, let's get to our winners and losers.
2: My winner, Americans for supporting a woman's right to choose in this week's elections. My loser, at least 2 million children who have lost Medicaid insurance this year due to bureaucratic errors.
1: My winner is also reproductive rights, as we saw in Ohio and in Kentucky and Virginia. And my loser is, on the flip side of that, the culture wars, which are not really where they were, obviously, when Ken Yunkin got elected. You know, the bathroom bills and the transgender rights issues are not really helping the Republicans. My winner is also reproductive rights.
0: My loser, Trump, MAGA, election deniers, and the anti-abortion Handmaid's Tale crowd. All right, which gets us to our weekly rant. Get the fuck out of our vaginas! That's the impassioned rallying cry, which continues to be loudly heard across America, and it was shouted from the mountaintops once again in this week's off-year elections in Ohio, Virginia, and elsewhere. The big victory was in Ohio, where voters chose to enshrine abortion rights in its state constitution, ending Republicans' relentless and underhanded attempts to strip women of their reproductive rights. In Virginia, voters rejected Governor Glenn Youngkin's promise to enact a 15-week abortion ban by not only voting to keep the Senate in Democratic control, but they also flipped the House. This gives Democrats full control of the state legislature and serves to abort, pun intended, Youngkin's right-wing dream of controlling women's bodies and family planning decisions. And in Kentucky, incumbent Governor Andy Beshear in his campaign spent millions to draw a major distinction on abortion, with his Republican opponent, Daniel Cameron. Since the Supreme Court's Dobbs decisions last year, which overturned 30 to 50 years of settled law with Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, seven states have held abortion-related ballot issues, and abortion rights advocates have won all seven contests. Kansas, Kentucky, and Montana defeated anti-abortion measures, while California, Michigan, and Vermont approved them abortion-related ballot issues to protect, limit, or ban reproductive rights maybe on the ballot next year in Arizona, Missouri, Florida, Oklahoma, Arkansas, South Dakota, Iowa, Nevada, Colorado, and Pennsylvania. And earlier this year, in Wisconsin, a liberal candidate, Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protasiewicz, won that state's open Supreme Court seat, which resulted in liberals controlling the high court and thereby staving off yet another conservative attack on reproductive rights. So is this a sign of things to come in November 24? It sure as fuck is. Because despite knowing that the nation is overwhelmingly pro-Roe, Republicans simply cannot help themselves. Vaginas and uteruses are like crack to them. They can't get off the pipe. They justified Dobbs by insisting that abortion should be left to the states. That obviously hasn't aged well. So now they've not only reversed Roe, they've reversed course on Roe by pushing for national bans raging from six to 15 weeks, which is why when it comes to voting, there's not one single issue that drives more people to the polls and literally drives them mad, especially suburban women and women of color. These are two extremely critical Democratic constituencies, and given the stats, they're clearly joined by moderate Republican and independents in defeating these measures, and which is why Republicans, because of their obsession with controlling women have not only lost every single abortion measure, but practically every single major and special election since 2016. And to that, I say, more please. All right, let's get to Gershon Baskin. He is an Israeli writer, columnist, author, and one of the most recognizable names in the Middle East peace process. His dedication to creating a culture of peace and environmental awareness, coupled with his impeccable integrity, has earned him the trust of the leaders of all sides of the century-old conflict. He is the director of the Holy Land Bond, a new fund aimed at investing in housing projects for Palestinians in East Jerusalem, and also integrated housing projects for Jewish and Palestinian citizens of Israel in Israel's mixed cities. He is the co-founder and former co-director of the Israel-Palestine Center for Research and Information. And during the premiership of the late Yitzhak Rabin, he served as a special advisor on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process to a secret team of intelligence officers established by Mr. Rabin. In 2011, after five years of negotiation with Hamas, he successfully brokered the release of abducted Israel Defense Forces soldier, Gilad Shalit. Gershon, welcome into the back room.
3: Thank you very much. Happy to be here.
0: So I want to start with something that occurred recently. You had a falling out with Ghazi Hamad, who has been, for about 18 years or so, your uh, uh, interlocutor, your counterpart on the other side in terms of negotiating Uh, trying to negotiate peace, also negotiating hostage releases. You were in the process of doing that prior to October 7th. You were looking to broker the release of other prisoners. And even after October 7th, my understanding is that you were continuing to discuss the current hostage situation. And then you had a falling out. Talk to us about that.
3: Well, falling out makes it sound like we had a romantic relationship. (laughs) So let's not put the truth apart. You guys broke Um, up. Tell us about the he breakup. Was an, he was an interlocutor of mine for 17 plus years in negotiating between Israel and Hamas. Uh, for the first five years and four months, we worked on negotiating the prisoner exchange that took place with Israel uh, releasing 1,027 Palestinian prisoners and mm-hmm. Hamas releasing one Israeli soldier. Um, not a very balanced deal.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, it was the only deal that could have been made at the time. It was a very difficult negotiation, mainly because it took a long time before the parties were ready to agree. The initial deal was put on the table six months after the soldier Gilad Shalit was abducted, but it took another five years before the government of Israel and Hamas were actually ready to close the deal. And it was because of the relationship that developed between Ghazi, Hamid, and I primarily that enabled us to reach a breakthrough in those negotiations Because after months of going back and forth like a ping pong ball, crossing the T's and dotting the I's, I proposed to him one evening uh, that he simply put his cards on the table and I put my cards on the table and we meet at the midpoint. And that could only be done once there was a trustful relationship between us, knowing that we were not actually trying to deceive each other, but trying to reach an agreement. And, And when we did that, after months of intensive negotiations that I at that point was acting officially appointed by the Mossad agent who was in charge of the file and authorized by Prime Minister Netanyahu. And we reached a breakthrough document that the the person from Mossad, David Beitan, took to Netanyahu and got a a green light to finish the deal. It took another few months, but the aftermath of that was that I proposed to him that we begin negotiating a long-term ceasefire. We never negotiated peace. I don't believe that peace was ever possible between Israel and Hamas. But there is in Islamic jurisprudence, something called hudna. It was done by the prophet Muhammad and a hudna can be agreed to for a period of 10 years and then can be renewed. So we talked about negotiating a long-term ceasefire, this hudna, which would entail Israel opening up the blockade on Gaza, enabling Gaza to be reintegrated into the Palestinian fabric and economy and reopening up Gaza to the world, making life a little bit better in Gaza for the two plus million people who lived there. And of course, easing the tensions between Hamas and Israel. That never happened. We negotiated, we had documents that we were working on and then Israel assassinated the head of the the military wing of Hamas, who was the person responsible for the soldier Gilad Chalit. Israel went after anyone who had anything to do with abducting the Israeli soldier after the deal was made, including the four people who were watching him for five years and four months. Um, and And that's just part of the ongoing relationship between Israel and Hamas, which has gone through repeated rounds of warfare. We've successfully negotiated ceasefires twice over the years. For the last eight years, we've been stuck, more or less, negotiating the release of the bodies of two Israeli soldiers who were killed in 2014, and two Israeli civilians who were not mentally healthy, who had gone into Gaza on their own, a Bedouin Israeli and an Ethiopian Israeli. And we made progress in those negotiations, but we didn't complete them i tried to expand the discussion again to talking about long-term ceasefire but by that time in hindsight it was too little too late and hamas had already begun planning this horrific attack on israel that they did
0: listening to you what you just did for the last few minutes is give history you gave context you described a very complicated nuanced situation yet in the united states you see a lot of protests, a lot of protests with young people, college students, and I have the opinion that most of them have no idea what the hell they're talking about. Do you find it shocking, surprising? Do you find it dangerous what you see going on in the United States right now?
3: I think it's entirely legitimate for people to protest for Palestine, for Palestinian rights, for freeing, freeing Palestine from Israeli occupation. I think it's completely legitimate to protest in support of Israel. Um, We have a conflict here between two people who are fighting over the same land. When any logical person knows that the only reasonable outcome is to figure out a way to share the land, one side is not going to push the other off. Um, I think it's personally insane to import the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to America. Uh, If you're pro-Palestinian, do something for the Palestinians. If you're pro-Israel, do something for Israel. If you're pro-peace, do something to bring Israelis and Palestinians together. But to protest one side against the other seems to me insane, and to actually fight it out, to import the violence and the insanity of our conflict outside of our conflict zone, doesn't make any sense to me. And what do you think is the cause of that here? I think this is a very emotional issue. I I think that uh, American Jews feel threatened when Israel is threatened, when Israel is attacked. And even though most American Jews, the majority of American Jews, are not aligned or identified with any Jewish organization or or anything pro-Israel, there's something that touches a raw nerve because of thousands of years of Jewish history and persecution. Um, Jews need to feel legitimized. They need to feel that we're accepted. It's part of our psyche because of a long history. I think that Palestinians who have suffered for 75 years and have been neglected by most of the world for that period of time, certainly by the United States, even when the United States was was playing the role of negotiator or mediator, the United States was always more biased toward Israel. Um, And and I think that there's a lot of sentiment to people who side with the Palestinians. Um, Let's face it, it's always easier to side with the underdog Mm -hmm. than it is with the strong, with the bully on the block. Um, and, And Israel In its early history, it was presented as the little David against the big Goliath, and today it's reverse. The Palestinians are the David, and and, and Israel is the Goliath. And it's true, Israel has a powerful, mighty army, which failed to protect us on October 7th. But look at what they're doing today, and this is clearly a message to the rest of the region. Don't mess with us. Mm -hmm. We may have failed on October 7th, but we know how to hit back, um, and they're doing it. And I think it's, it's when you see... Look, we in Israel see the buildings falling down with the Israeli bombs. We don't see the human suffering. Mm -hmm. The Palestinians don't see the terrorism that the Hamas did inside of Israel on October 7th. They only see what Israel's doing to them. And we all see our own little picture. In America, you watch MSNBC or you watch Fox, and you're getting completely different pictures of the same reality. Mm -hmm.
0: I, I recently saw a map of the Middle East, and somebody had said something like, so... Israel is the occupier, but the whole map was green, the entire Middle East, and Israel was this microscopic little red sliver, which was like 0.4%. Right. What do you say to the people who say, isn't the land being shared right now? And, and looking at that map, perhaps in a very inequitable way.
3: No, if, if, if you think that all Arabs are the same and the Arab nation is one Arab nation, that might be true. But because of the rise of nationalism at the end of the 19th century and the power, the imperial power, powers that drew up maps and made lines on maps, there have actually been nation states that are created today that have a separate identity. Mm-hmm. And Palestinians who are native to the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, even though there was immigration to this land always, there are Palestinians here who have been living here for hundreds and thousands of years. Maybe they were at one time Jews. I would assume that most of the Palestinian Christians were Jews who created, who converted to Christianity. And many of the Muslims may have been Jews at some point or Christians. And it doesn't really matter. There is a separate nation of people who identify themselves as Palestinians. They number physically, on the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, the same number as Israeli Jews here. There's an equal number of Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Jews. And we're living on the same land that each we claim is our own. Mm -hmm. We all claim that God gave it to us, even those of us who don't believe in God. We claim that we give our identity to the land, and the land gives its identity to us. And in reality, we either have to live in one state, two states, three states, ten states, it doesn't really matter, We have to recognize that all of us have the same right to the same rights. Mm -hmm. And once we recognize that, we can figure out how to share it in what kind of one state, two state, 10 state solution, federation, confederation. That's all the technical details. But the first route of, of solving this conflict is everyone having to recognize that the other guys here are not leaving, that they relate to this as their homeland as well. It is not exclusively me. We have to find some way of sharing it. And the answer is not to think that the Palestinians should move to Jordan or the Palestinians should move to Egypt because they're Arabs. That That's simply not going to happen. That's a part of the reality of this world that we live in.
0: You're doing that nuanced history context thing again, which I really <laughs> appreciate because I think it's so important. So getting back to the students, when people call for ceasefire, when people call for free Palestine, all the things that you see going on in the United States, and then you consider all the things you're talking about, which exist back and forth on both sides for centuries. And then tying it back into my original question about Ghazi Hamad, when you have a partner on the other side, and I use that term partner extremely generously, who recently, as he did, said, we not only attacked and did what we did on the 7th, but we're going to do it over and over and over again until Israel is destroyed. That was the cause of you saying, I'm done, I can't talk to you anymore. You've crossed a line of inhumanity that I see no return from. Given that setup, the people on the streets in New York and Chicago and L.A., what do they want and expect from Israel when that's what's on the other side of the table in trying to get to all the things you very logically and rationally and pragmatically are talking about in terms of two Parties that need to figure out their shit and figure out a way to live together right. and end this cycle of a- hostility and rage and violence that just seems to ex- has existed forever.
3: Yeah, for over a hundred years we've been killing each other. Look what what I would say is the following: What Hamas did on October 7th, they crossed a the line, uh, and that line is not one that they can come back from. They behaved like ISIS. Mm -hmm. There are differences between Hamas and ISIS. I'm not saying they're the same. They are not the same, but they behaved like ISIS. They did horrific acts of terrorism. Just when I hear the stories of the hostages, there are two children being held in hostage whose parents were killed in front of them before they were taken hostage. There were families who were burned alive in their homes. Horrific things that were done. They crossed a line which separated them, in my mind, from humanity. Hamas was never a partner for peace, but Hamas was part of the reality that existed, and we had to deal with it. And I will even say further, Hamas's role in Gaza was planned by Mr. Netanyahu. His own strategy since 2009 has been to keep um, weakened Hamas in power in Gaza and an illegitimate Palestinian authority in the West Bank in order for him to say to the world and to the people of Israel, we want peace, but we have no Palestinian partner. And his strategy worked so well that the Palestinian issue was re- erased from the international agenda. We went five, five rounds of elections in Israel without talking about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. What's important to say to the people in New York and the in Chicago is that the Palestinian people are the partner of Israel in the future of making peace, not Hamas. Hamas is not legitimate. It is not a legitimate partner. Now, Israel can destroy Hamas's ability to govern and to threaten Israel and kill its leaders and its military people. The ideology of Hamas can only be replaced by a better ideology. And the ideology that has to replace the death wish of Hamas, they sanctify death, is by telling Palestinians that you can actually live for Palestine, not only die for Palestine. You can live for Allah and Islam and Al-Quds and Al-Aqsa, and not just die for them. That there is a commandment from God to celebrate life. That's conditional on Israel saying, we are willing to recognize the right of the Palestinian people for freedom, liberty, justice, and all of that, because if the Palestinian people's rights are not recognized by Israel. How can we expect the Palestinians to accept Israel's right to exist? Or for that matter, the kids in Chicago or Detroit or New York? This has to be based on the principle that we're all here, we're all going to stay here, and we all have a right to be here. We have to start looking forward and not just backwards. We can argue history from now until eternity, but it's not going to solve the conflict. We have to look forward and figure out how we're going to share this land as equals so
0: that all makes a lot of sense and i agree with that but knowing the, the power structure and how barbaric hamas is how do the palestinian people get to the place where they are the ones sitting at the table not hamas
3: well i think first of all we have to re-legitimize the palestinian authority in order for do that to do that the palestinians need to go through deep reform They need democracy. There's one thing that every Palestinian I know agrees on, and only one thing, elections. They all want to select their leaders democratically. And this is quite an achievement. This is amazing. Almost all Palestinians believe that Mahmoud Abbas, who has been president of the Palestinian Authority, president for Palestine, I think he's in the 18th year of a four-year term. So I, I think that people have a right to choose their leaders. We need to structure or they need to structure their elections in a way that only legitimate parties that believe that Palestine should live freely and in peace with Israel should be allowed to participate. The position of the Palestinians in negotiations with Israel for 20 years has been that the state of Palestine will be non-militarized. I think that needs to be part of the framework under which elections are held. Mm -hmm. President Abbas can become president for life with the powers of the Queen of England, Um, And and they need a democratically elected uh, parliament and government to have legitimacy in their eyes. And whatever military framework is established, when Israel leaves Gaza and Israel must leave Gaza, we can't stay there and reoccupy and build settlements there again. That would be a nuclear bomb, to use a horrible metaphor that's been used in this war already. But it would be an explosive boomerang if Israel goes there and settles Again, it it puts Israeli settlements in Gaza. Mm -hmm. There needs, in my mind, to be a multinational Arab force led by the Palestinians with Egypt and Jordan and the Emirates and Bahrain, and the Saudis' position is very important. There needs to be an international commitment for a regional peace negotiation where it's not bilateral Israel-Palestine. Those tables are not balanced enough. It needs to be regional with the participation of Egypt and Jordan and the Emirates and Bahrain And the Saudis need to be there as well, because that provides even more legitimacy. And Israel has to understand that there will be a two-state solution, even though in the past years I thought it was probably no longer viable. Suddenly, it's the option that everyone's talking again. And what it means is that the United States is going to have to lead the free world, the OECD countries, in recognizing the state of Palestine. Because how can you talk about a two-state solution and only recognize one of them? We need to balance the playing field. We Mm -hmm. need to have state-to-state negotiations, not between Israel and some organization called the PLO. And the state of Palestine needs to be granted full membership in the United Nations to be an equal member of the community of nations. This begins to create a balance and a possibly feasible way to move forward with additional billions of dollars that are going to reconstruct Gaza. I would, even against the will of the United States, invite the Chinese to participate in that because no one's better than building infrastructure quickly than the Chinese, and we need them to help rebuild Gaza and to realign Gaza with the West Bank and East Jerusalem and the rest of the world. There's a lot of work to do. These are a lot of moving pieces. The United States has to coordinate it and take the lead in it, but the United States should not be in the negotiating room when the Israelis and the Palestinians and the Arab neighbors are sitting together because that offsets the balance (laughs) of the negotiations.
0: So what do you say to people who say, That the people in Gaza, they elected Hamas, talk about elections, and that since 1948, the Palestinian side has consistently rejected two-state solution. So yes, I agree with what you're saying about Israel, but there hasn't been a real concerted effort on the other side to get to that place in the middle. I, again, I, I love everything you're saying, and I don't think anyone is going to disagree that that is the goal. But like I, I joke sometimes, like I'd like to be 6'8 and play for the New York Knicks, but that ain't going to happen either.
3: So how how I does what— I think it's probably pretty hard to be 6'8. I wouldn't want to be 6'8, but playing with the I, Knicks is a good idea. Well, as someone who's 5'8, no. <laughs> I'll give it a shot, especially on a, pro, put, on a pro team. I want to give context <laughs> again, and, and context and complicity. In 2006, when the Palestinian people in the occupied territories, West Bank and Gaza, elected Hamas by a majority, they didn't win an absolute majority. They won a majority of people in in the parliament. They won primarily because when Ariel Sharon decided to disengage from Gaza and remove Israeli military and Israeli settlements from Gaza, he refused to do it in coordination and negotiations with President Abbas, was elected in 2005 with a large majority on the platform of being against the militarization of the Second Intifada. He had separated from Yasser Arafat because Yasser Arafat militarized the Second Uprising, the Second Intifada, and he supported nonviolence and security coordination with Israel. But Ariel Sharon, the Israeli Prime Minister, said, no, Mahmoud Abbas is a, this is an exact quote, he said, he's a chick without feathers. This man doesn't fly. We are not negotiating with him. He's not a partner. And Israel withdrew unilaterally in 2005 from Gaza. Now, who won the narrative of kicking Israel out of Gaza? Was it Mahmoud Abbas who said, let's negotiate peace? Or was it Hamas who said, we kicked Israel out? Israel only understands the language of force. I know Palestinian Christians who voted for Hamas. They're certainly not Islamists and they're not fanatic Muslims, Christians, who voted for Hamas because they said Hamas kicked Israel out of Gaza. It's the same thing happened in Lebanon. When Israel unilaterally left Lebanon without an agreement with Lebanon or with Syria, it automatically meant that we were going to go back and fight a war there because we, we empowered the rejectionists. Now, Palestinians have been negotiating with Israel since 1992 under the Oslo framework, which was meant to be a two-state framework. Israel and the PLO signed six agreements that were systematically breached by both sides. Neither side implemented what they were supposed to do. The agreements never said that the outcome of the agreement should be a Palestinian state next to Israel. That was implied. It was never explicit. It was implicit in the process. Just as the wording that Israel should not build more settlements in the occupied territory never appeared in any of the agreements, No one in their right mind thought that while Israel is withdrawing from territories, they're gonna go back in and build settlements. So there were so many mistakes made in that agreement that in the end, rather than building trust upwards and being able to negotiate sensitive issues like Jerusalem and refugees, we had a spiraling down of trust between the two parties so that neither side believed the other. And it didn't matter if we kept negotiating because negotiation was futile. There was no trust at all. And it course, it exploded in the Second Intifada with the horrific terrorist attacks done first by Hamas and then by other groups in the PLO. In 2008-2009, Prime Minister Olmert and, and President Mahmoud Abbas negotiated. They met 42 times and came closer to an agreement ever before. But Olmert got indicted for corruption and had to step down. And the person who was supposed to replace him, Tibi Livni, who was foreign minister but never became prime minister, and Condoleezza Rice, who was secretary of state at the time, even though she denies this, both told Mahmoud Abbas to wait till Tippi Livni is prime minister, something that never happened. They told him not to continue negotiating with Olmert. Both Olmert and Abbas say if they had another three months to negotiate, they would have completed a deal. Till this day... Olmert and Abbas say, not three months, another month, they would have completed an agreement. Abbas never said no, but he never said yes, because the negotiations didn't continue, and Netanyahu became prime minister. Netanyahu made a brilliant speech at Bar-Ilan University declaring his support of a two-state solution. The next day, Netanyahu's father, the famous historian Benzion Netanyahu, was interviewed on Israeli army radio, in which he said the following. He said, I know my son. He didn't mean it. And that's a quote. And of course, he didn't mean it. He did everything over the next 14, 15 years to ensure that there would not be a two-state solution. And that brought us to where we are today. Now, the Palestinians are not innocent victims. They had 14 years to put out a peace plan. They had 14 years to convince the Israeli public that they were a partner. They did not do that. They have a corrupt government today. Everyone knows they're corrupt, and they don't have democracy. In 2021, there was a plan for democracy. The Palestinian electoral system is like in America. If you want to vote, you have to register. Not like in Israel. We don't register. We're in the population registry. We have the right to vote. In Palestine, they had to register. 85% of the Palestinian people in the West Bank and in Gaza registered to vote. 36 political parties registered to participate in those elections. It was a festival of democracy. And the United States and Israel told Mahmoud Abbas, If you hold those elections, Hamas is going to win." So they came up with the excuse that Israel wouldn't allow elections to take place in East Jerusalem. I don't know why the Palestinians asked for permission from Israel to hold those elections. They could have created a system to do it. They could have been held in the foreign consulates, in churches, over the border, electronically. But they conveniently asked Israel for permission to hold elections in East Jerusalem. Israel never answered. Israel didn't say yes, and Israel didn't say no. But on the basis of the answer, Mahmoud Abbas canceled the elections. He was not interested in elections, the Palestinian people were. That is the primary reason why we had a mini war in 2021, because of the disappointment to the Palestinian people of not having elections, of choosing their leaders finally after so many years. So this is all context. To say that there's no partner is a fabrication, is a myth that we helped to create. The Palestinians collaborated with it. And unfortunately, and, and have responsibility for their own situation as well. But let's not always blame the victim as well. There there are two sides of the conflict. There is a strong side, there is a weak side, there is an occupier, there is an occupied. There is a side with a very strong army, and a side with, at least in, in the West Bank, have no army. In, in Gaza, they have a formidable army, but nothing compared to what Israel has.
0: Yeah, and again, that's all true. And I just to sort of speak for the other side of that coin yeah, go for it there's yeah. the people who say yes but there's also the side that committed the kind of a tr- barbaric atrocities no so, so, so sometimes the smallest voice or the weaker player causes the most harm i'm not That's saying right. that this is all on pa- palestinians or israel israelis but it you know to, to to arrive at a two-state solution it takes two sides to accomplish that sure. but Here, you know here's what, but, I but see what I was going to say just... listening to you speak there's that scene in Woody Allen's Annie Hall where he's at the movie theater and the bozo no. behind him is just you know going off on Marshall McLuhan And Woody Allen says, well, I happen to have Marshall McLuhan right here. And Marshall McLuhan turns to the idiot and says, you know nothing of my work. Like, I wish I could take you on the streets of New York, like into Washington Square Park when like some 20 year old. And I, I have a, a 19 year old, so I, I have a particular fondness for, for teenagers. Yeah, and I'm a
3: graduate. <laughs> I did my BA in NYU. I used to hide, hung out in Washington Square Park. Quite okay, a so, lot.
0: but say, like, excuse me, I happen to have Gershon Baskin right here, and he's going to give you some context to what you just but, like. It, I think it's, it's complicated. It is so complicated, but, and, and and, but, but the situation seems to be getting worse because of people who maybe even thousands of miles away from the region who are making it worse because they have no idea what the hell they're talking about.
3: Yeah, well, fortunately, they don't have much decision-making power here. But I, I want to yeah. give another um, thing that might make it easier for us to deal with. Um, peacemaking cannot be naive. It can't be based on the idea that the other side is going to do what they promise they're going to do because our experience is that we sign six agreements and then breach them. So we have to make a new kind of peace agreements that are based on not having trust, that have mechanisms built into them that allow us to monitor and verify their implementation. And they're built with specific benchmarks so that we don't move on from one benchmark to another and take risks against our own lives and security without knowing that the other side has implemented its commitments. And this goes both ways. Now, that needs responsible third parties to do the job. I don't want NATO forces here or American forces protecting us. There's no reason why some kid from Ohio has to risk his life so that Israelis and Palestinians can live in peace. We need to do that work. But we need Americans to be the monitors and the verifiers of the agreements that we will sign that are based on total lack of trust. That's how we have to approach it. We don't believe them. They don't believe us. Let's take tiny steps forward taking minimal risks until we get to a point where we have to take the bigger risks, And then we're much more secure that the other side is genuine in their intent. And I'll give you a couple of benchmarks for an example. When we all change our textbooks and start teaching peace, that's a really important benchmark. What we teach our children is a reflection of our real values. And when we all sit together and evaluate our own textbooks based on agreed criteria and then we start making changes in how we teach our children, that's an important benchmark. When clergy rabbis and sheiks in mosques start talking about peace, then we can believe that something genuine is happening.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: When we withdraw to positions that risk our security, We know that there are mechanisms in place that not only allow us to go back in if we have to, but more importantly that the other side is fighting against terrorism when they have to. So there are all these kinds of mechanisms and all this is not being judged by us or by them. There's a mechanism of third parties led by the United States, led by a three or four star general. He recognizes what needs to be done and monitors it and provides report cards You've done what you, haven't, what you have to do, and you haven't done what you have to do. Mm-hmm.
0: I want to circle back and uh, end our conversation with the hostage situation. You have referred to low-hanging fruit, which I find really interesting. I'd like you to address that for a second. And then also you have a, an idea as to how pretty much the only way that this situation can be resolved. Speak to those two things.
3: So there's a chance of the humanitarian release, and this is apparently what's being talked about in Beirut, in Doha, and in Cairo by the three tracks of negotiations that are going on in parallel. This is for a release of the women, the children, and the elderly, maybe the sick and the wounded as well. We don't know the absolute number, but this seems to be the right thing to do. It's in accordance with what Hamas is supposed to believe in, in terms of their theology. The Quran is very specific about not attacking women, children, and elderly people and not holding them hostage. So it goes along with what they're supposed to believe in. I I think their view and understanding of Islam is distorted. It's not the real Islam. But even then, this is not interpretation. This is in the Quran. It's written. It's explicit. Um, The Israelis have 43 Palestinian women prisoners and 190 prisoners who are under the age of 18. They could be exchanged hamas mostly wants a ceasefire a ceasefire will only be granted if it's a significant release on the other side because a ceasefire requires redeployment of forces they're in the center of gaza city they're around hospitals schools they're in sensitive locations there's no way that israel can do a ceasefire and sit there as sitting ducks while hamas could violate the ceasefire so israel will do a ceasefire and will redeploy to more secure locations If we're talking about a significant number of hostages, they're holding 240 or 241 or 240, a significant number of people, babies, children, women, elderly people. I I mean, it's just absurd. It's horrific when you think about it. The only way, as I've said, that all the hostages can come back alive without knowing how many of them are alive today is through a deal. And the deal that Hamas is demanding is an all-for-all deal. All the Palestinian prisoners in Israel for all the hostages. This is the lifetime goal of Yahya Sinwar, the leader of Hamas in Gaza, the man who was freed in the Shalit Exchange in 2011. And he has promised always since then that he will release all the prisoners. There are about 7,000 Palestinian prisoners in Israel. 559 of them were serving life sentences for murdering Israelis. 130 were captured over the border on October 7th or afterwards, who murdered Israelis, about 25 or 30% of the prisoners are Hamas members. Only about 400 of them are from Gaza, the majority are from the West Bank. 2,000 of them are administrative detainees, which means that Israel arrested them without charge and imprisoned them without trial. So they may be easier to release, I don't know. But it seems very unlikely that the current government of Israel and the very weak Prime Minister Netanyahu today has the ability to get a deal like that through its government when there are people in the government from the far right wing who have said the the hostages need to be sacrificed in order to achieve the primary military goal of destroying Hamas. Now there is a contradiction between those two things, destroying Hamas and freeing the hostages, yet I believe that Israel has a moral responsibility to the hostages. Israel failed to protect them. The primary function of any country is to protect their citizens, and Israel failed to protect its citizens. And 1,400 Israelis were murdered and 240 were taken hostage. So we have a moral responsibility to bring them home. I think that if the state of Israel sacrifices the hostages, which is entirely possible, this is a wound that Israeli society will not heal from. It will take generations to heal from the loss of social solidarity, the loss of the sense that the country has our back. Even though we lost that on October 7th, the country is making big efforts. The army is making huge efforts to regain trust to the people that we are defended, that we are protected. Every Israeli today feels vulnerable, just as by the way, every Palestinian does. We're in the same boat in this war of having no one who's protecting us and no one who's caring for us. It seems, this is the feeling, I think, of most Israelis and most Palestinians, I think that israel is going to try to exhaust every possibility for the what you call the low hanging fruit the humanitarian deal of women children elderly sick and wounded um i'm not sure that a deal can be made in the short time that we have soon the military ops of special forces will be going into the tunnels and hiding places to find the hostages they will certainly rescue some they rescued one already they will rescue others but it's very high risk to the hostages Mm -hmm. And to the soldiers. It's such a complicated
0: situation. There are no clear answers, uh, despite the fact that Jared Kushner apparently had brought peace to the Middle East. I don't know why we're all sitting here discussing any of this, because that happened. right? right? But, you know, I know that
3: Jared Jared Kushner got richer (laughs) bringing peace to the police. That's happened.
0: True. And to put a punctuation on the conversation, it it is complicated, because on the Palestinian side, there's all the obvious reasons why they're angry. And then, you know, you have... Jews, I and I'm I'm one that uh, since the Holocaust we walk around with a varying degrees of PTSD, and our, you know we just constantly worry about am I going to be put in an oven someday? So whether that's what? irrational is not the issue. It's just like you said earlier, two sides have such strong vehement opposition and hatred, and I don't know. I mean, I'm 64. I've lived with this my whole life. It's hard to imagine it ever changing. Do you think it could ever change? Uh,
3: Well, look, I I think once we recognize that these two people are going through the biggest traumas for Jews since the Holocaust, 80 years, the biggest trauma. More Jews were killed in one day on October 7th than at any other time since the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. What's happening in Gaza, what Hamas did is not the Holocaust. We have a country. We have an army. We have sovereignty. We are strong. So it's not the Holocaust. We're not helpless. We can protect ourselves when we understand what we need to do. The Palestinians have been taken back by Hamas 75 years. They are experiencing once again the Nakba, seeing these walking uh, roads of thousands of Palestinians moving from the north of Gaza to the south of Gaza with all their belongings on their back is recalling what happened to them in the Nakba in the catastrophe of 1948. And while we're talking radical, racist, violent settlers are killing Palestinians in the West Bank, and forcing small communities in the south of the West Bank to move out of their villages so they can be taken over by settlers, and they're being protected by the Israeli army. So the Palestinians are going through this trauma as well. Mm -hmm. What we have to hope is that we will have, after this war, what I've been calling our Belfast moment. What happened in Belfast was not a moment. It was a process, but there was a time when the people of Northern Ireland said no more, and they were willing to sit with their enemies and negotiate peace, And while the peace in Northern Ireland is not a perfect peace, and they didn't even resolve the conflict, no one knows if Northern Ireland will be part of the Republic of Ireland or part of the United Kingdom. The point is that they are not killing each other anymore. They found a way to coexist with the conflict going on, negotiating it constantly. That's what needs to happen to us. We need our Belfast moment where we are going to make our leaders pay the price for bringing us to where we are, None of our leaders, not in Israel nor in Palestine, have a right to continue governing us. And we need new people with new hopes, new visions, new ideas, and new abilities to sit with the enemy and figure out how we move forward.
0: Well, Gershon, this has been a fascinating conversation. I thank you for coming on. I hope you'll come back and uh, continue that chat.
3: For sure. Thank you.
0: This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week.